Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. I got to start with a little bit of an embarrassing confession. It was a few weeks ago. I was driving home from vacation down the freeway, and there was a billboard uh, for the Mega Millions. And uh, at first glance, I thought it said a $105 million jackpot. I'm like, oh, that's weird. It's pretty low. Someone must have won it recently. I think it was like 700 the last time I saw it. But as I got closer, I saw a period after the one. And then under the big numbers, I saw the word billion. And I was flooded with a feeling of reverent awe. And my, my heart felt a sense of deep longing. If I won that much money, then, then I would be happy. Then all my problems would go away. Listen, I know that's not true in my head. I heard Stan say, yeah, right. Uh, I know the stories of sad rich people, celebrity suicides, the stat that I heard somewhere, I didn't fact check it, but it's like uh, a majority of people who win the lottery are dead after five years. And those who aren't view it like a curse that ruined their relationships and leaves them miserable. I know the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. But I'm trying to be honest and, and, and give an example of what I think Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches. And I was like, yeah, but I would do it right. I would be the exception. If I had $1.05 billion, it would be okay. And for the next hour of that car ride, my mind was spinning with all the dreams and hopes and plans and everything that I would, would be able to do if I logged into my bank account and saw a much smaller sum after taxes and everything uh, in, in, in there. And if I had to distill down like what my heart was longing for, because it, it wasn't for the dollars, you know, like dollars are just dollars, you know, or anymore, they're just numbers on a screen. Uh, it was two things. It was security and significance. If I had that much money, I would be safe. And we lose power a lot in Forest Park West. So it was like, first thing I'd do is take my, take my house off grid uh, somehow. I'm gonna be like totally independent, living in the city off grid, not trusting the grid anymore. Um, could buy all this cool stuff that would give me autonomy and independence and not make me vulnerable. And if I had money, I'd be able to make a difference. I'd be able to fix things, make feel like I was significant. I would you know, I'd start businesses. I'd be like, like Elon Musk. He, I don't really care about the businesses he started, but his thing was like, I had a big pot of money and I hired the smartest, best people in every industry to like change the world. That's what I want to do. I want to hire the best people. I want to start businesses, start regenerative farms, build housing for people, give people jobs. You know, just this, you know, basically I want to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth by myself with a bunch of money because I would feel like I was significant. What my heart was longing for was, of course, not the actual dollars, but what the actual dollars, that hoping or thinking or be believing the lie, at least for a minute, or at least in my daydreams, that 
these dollars could satisfy two core longings of my soul, uh, two core longings that God has put in the heart of humans. Significance and security, it's not bad to want those things. I think God wired us to need those things. But he has given us himself to satisfy those longings. And the reason why money is such a huge deal, the reason why Jesus talks about money more than heaven or hell, more than sex, even more than love, is because it is so easy to replace God with money functionally. Not that we like, consciously make that choice, but functionally that can happen. It is the sneakiness, the deceptive, deceptivity of money. To go to money to meet our God-given needs, to fill the God-shaped hole in our souls. And Jesus says it very bluntly in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for he will, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's either or. There's no God and money. It's God or money. Hate one and love the other. Devoted to one and despise the other. This is stark, black and white, absolute from King Jesus. And if you're like me, I want to be like, but, but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus. Think about, no, but let's be a little more nuanced with this. Let's, let's like thread the needle a little bit more. But that is what Jesus says. It's one or the other. For text today, Jesus is talking about money and wealth. He's talking about more than money and wealth, but he is talking, he's not talking about less than money and wealth. We talked about the topic of divorce last week. Jesus is blowing minds and here Jesus is blowing our minds again. And th this portion of this biography of Jesus is uh, some of his final teachings as he's prepared to die, preparing to die on the cross in Jerusalem. These are some of his final teachings for his inner circle, his disciples. And this, his inner circle uh, hears these teaching with absolute shock like open mouth hanging, what shock. And so I, I want to preach this text faithfully. I want to convey what Jesus is saying here in, in its shock and awe uh, with the huge caveat that I am so far from done in regards to money, my relationship to money and my discipleship to Jesus. Uh, I, if you're uncomfortable for the next 30 or 40 minutes, uh, consider what my week was like with hours in this text, trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. I mean, not, not just to, what to say, but like, what does God want to do? What is Jesus, my King, calling me to do in regards to my money? So there we go. Today, Jesus is coming after our money and riches. He's very blunt. And the main idea for us this morning is that because Jesus loves us, he gives us a dire warning about wealth and also a lucrative invitation to buy into the kingdom with an extravagant guaranteed ROI, return on investment. It's a little bit clunky, I'm sorry. It's got three parts. There's the love part. It's so significant that everything we look at today is flowing from Jesus's heart of love. It's the only part in Matthew or in, in the Gospel of Mark where it explicitly says Jesus is loving someone. And it's here in this conversation about money. It's hard. I just want, we've got to keep that on the map. We've got to hold tight to that. When it feels uncomfortable, it feels like Jesus is being mean or unreasonable. It is flowing from love. And it is a warning. 
It is a dire warning that if we ignore it, if we ignore King Jesus here, we will endanger our very souls. And then then it ends with good news for those who have ears to hear that there is a guaranteed investment with 100% ROI, 100% return. So God showed up on earth as a person and said, you will receive this hundredfold return. So turning to the scriptures, let's first see the thing that came right before our teaching text, verse 13 of chapter 10. Turn your Bibles to Mark 10 if you haven't yet. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He took a child to the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So right before a rich young ruler comes up, Jesus blew everyone's mind by saying, the kingdom of God belongs to people who are like children. What do children have? Nothing. You know, it's like when my kids try to like barter with me, like, I'll give you this if you let me have a popsicle. I'm like, well, whatever this is, is like mine. You know, it's like something I gave you or whatever. You, you don't have anything. And that people who cannot receive the kingdom, receive the gift of the kingdom of God, the way kids receive their Christmas presents or a popsicle with no shame, no refusing it, no trying to earn it, said so you, you won't receive the kingdom of God. You won't receive the new life, life with God under his rule. And so, I mean, probably if I could do it again, I probably would have combined these passages, the children and the rich young ruler, because they they go hand in hand. It's profound that Mark is following up the, the passage about kids and receiving the kingdom with this rich young ruler. It gets us to our text, verse 17. Jesus started on his way, uh, um, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So we know that this guy is rich. And, but if we look at uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. So he's got everything going for him. Top cream of the crop, top notch, 1%, whatever you want to call him. And not only that, but he has apparently sought to be a good person. He sought to follow the Torah, the law of Moses, since he was a boy. And it Apparently, there, despite everything he has going for him, he feels some, that something is missing, that there's a lack. All the boxes are checked, but something still made him run to Jesus and fall on his knees before Jesus. And he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we just got to do a tiny bit of work around the term eternal life, because depending on your church background, one of the developments that has happened, I think, in the 20th century of the church is that we've reduced terms like eternal life or salvation of getting to, going to heaven when you die and stay there forever. Uh, but that's just not what those terms meant in the scriptures and not what Jesus or the first century audience would have 
meant. Yes, there is heaven, <laughs> but here, this is some Bible trivia. What does the Bible say we we're going to spend eternity? Anybody brave enough to shout it out? With Christ, yes. All right, let's go. That was, that was a hard question. We'll try, we'll try, we'll try a different question. Um, is it in heaven or the new kingdom on earth? In the new heavens and the new earth. The picture that we get of eternity is that Jesus will come back, will make the earth new, and we will live forever with Christ. Yes and amen. That's the important part. That's the, you got the right answer. Uh, on earth, we will spend eternity in a glorious resurrected body and we will live an earthly embodied perfect life with God himself. He will be our light. He will wipe away all our tears. There'll be no more sun and moon because God will provide all the light. And so it's this idea, eternal life. What will get me into eternal life? Life with God under his rule for forever. That's how the story ends for all who follow Jesus. But it's not the case for everyone. When Jesus comes back, he will judge the living and the dead. And those who have rejected Jesus as king will not enter the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of God, eternal life, will not be saved. All these terms kind of refer to the same thing. So there's this, this breaking point in history where on this side of history, we're waiting for the full coming of kingdom. And when we die, we go to be with God in a temporary disembodied space only to be uh, united with Jesus on earth forever. And this man's saying, how do I end up on the right side of that divide? How do I end up on the right side of history? What do I have to do now in the present age so that I'm good to go in the age to come? And it's striking that Jesus does not say, pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be in. No, he responds with what pretty much every other Jewish rabbi would have told this man. Follow the, the Torah. Follow the law. Wait, what? Did Jesus just forget about sin and grace and forgiveness and the intrinsic sinfulness of every human heart? No, he's drawing the man out. And the man says, yes, I've done that. But I, I think you can kind of hear in the man's response that he's saying, I've done that, but it's not enough. I still feel like something's missing. The law isn't enough. Have you ever felt that way? You got your money right, your family's doing good, you aren't doing anything super egregiously wrong, you know, you, you don't have any of the like obvious uh, public sins or whatever, you know. Um, everybody would say you're, you're such a nice guy or she's so kind. If there's something gnawing at your soul that you're missing something. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is an amazing verse. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is the only time in the gospel of Mark where we have explicitly said that Jesus loved somebody. Of course, he, loves, he loved everybody. He worked from a place of love as God, God of love in the flesh. But he's, he's looking and he's loving this man with this tender gaze. And he says, you're right. There is one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor 
then you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure in the age to come in the kingdom of God. And then come follow me. That according to Jesus, according to Jesus's long loving gaze and insight into this man's life is what was missing. And it's, and it's amazing turn of phrase. What was lacking in this man's life was not having a lack. What this man needed was need. There was a, the lack was the fullness of his bank accounts, the real estate portfolio, the, and the degree to which those things kept him from being like a child and receiving the kingdom of God as a gift. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. This rich young ruler, this guy with everything going for him falls at his feet, at Jesus' feet, and yet walks away sad. It's the only time in the gospel of Mark that someone falls at Jesus's feet and goes away sad. Everybody else gets an awesome miracle. And the Greek word uh, translated sad here is, is, is one like grief. It's like what you feel when, you die, when you're around death, when someone dies. To give up his wealth for this man was like considering death. We just have Jesus extending this invitation to this man uh, to take up his cross to die, deny himself, to die to himself and follow Jesus, to lose his life in order to find it. The man walks away from Jesus, from the good teacher. A lot of discussion around that term, good teacher, and, and then even more around Jesus's response. Uh, it's weird that he calls him good. It's an honor shame culture. There's a lot of things going on there. It, but his, Jesus's response to this guy is almost like, why are you calling me good? Only God's good and, and I'm not God. And I think what Jesus was saying is, why are you calling me a term traditionally reserved for Yahweh, for God, when you don't actually consider me God with authority? You're coming to me as just a good teacher, one of many teachers that you've learned from throughout your life. This man, <clears throat> this rich young ruler was running a good life and he felt like he needed a little bit, he needed another hot insight another YouTube video with some advice or something, a little boost to his already impressive life to kind of, you know, just take it to the next level. And so he walked away sad because, well, he hoped Jesus would just have that one little piece to make him complete. Instead, Jesus says you need to die to your entire way of life and be reborn as a child become like a child and grow into a new kind of person through following me. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus is blowing minds here, why? Well, because I think woven into sinful human hearts is the belief, which a lot of times is unconscious, but it's the belief that if you are good, then good will happen to you. If you are good, if you do the right thing, then you'll be happy and successful. It was the prevailing worldview at this time uh, in first century Israel. And take it or leave it, I think it is still the prevailing worldview, even amongst Christians. If you're rich, it's because God was blessing you for your goodness. If you were poor, or blind, or cripple, it was because of your sin or your parents' sin. 
And so for Jesus to say, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God would have been nonsensical, would have flown in the face of everything the disciples believed that was enforced by the culture that they had grown up being taught, that had, was functionally lived out. They're shocked. They're amazed. And so Jesus walks it back and softens it. No, he doesn't. Look what, look what happens next in the rest of 24. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is Jesus's dire warning. And as the master teacher illustrator, he gives us this image of a camel trying to get through an eye of a needle. And listen, despite what you've heard, this is a literal camel and a literal needle. <laughs> uh, the, the shock and awe of Jesus's teaching has led Christians throughout, the, throughout history to try to soften uh, this image and say, well, no, you know, there was a small gate that a camel could get through, but he had to take his load off, had to get on his knees, and it was awkward and funny to see a camel like squeeze through a gate or whatever. There's just no basis in the text for that. Jesus is saying it is as hard for a literal camel to get through a little, a little tiny eye of a needle. Wealth is a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. That's the warning. It's terrifying. Now, on the cutting room floor, you know, I had stuff in here about like how to know if you're wealthy and global wealth index. And, you know, there's all this stuff. But suffice it to say... That, yeah, I mean, yes, I think there are some people in here who uh, are not wealthy, who we are so glad you're here and we want to come alongside you. But for, I think, a lot of us, we would fall into, globally at least, a category of wealth. And so that money is dangerous and it can keep us from experiencing the life that God has for us. It can keep us from experiencing intimacy with God. It's a scary thing. Now we have the lucrative invitation, verse 28. Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So the disciples have left their father's businesses. They left their boats, their nets, the tax collecting wealth, the privilege, lots of things to follow Jesus. And Jesus says effectively, yes, emphatically, truly, I tell you. Anytime you see that, verily, verily, if you're King James, truly, truly, I say to you, he's laying down some facts. He's making a statement of reality that we can we can listen to uh, or choose to reject. When someone gives up the most precious things, notice that there's not bad things. This isn't like anyone who leaves a life of sin, drugs, sex, and rock and roll uh, to follow me. No, it's family, careers, belonging, achievement is like an investment. What is the return on investment? What is the ROI? A hundred times. And this is even more mind-blowing. When? Is it just for later? No, in the present age. Uh, 
If you give up a home to follow Jesus, you have a hundred homes in towns wherever there are Jesus followers. If you lose the approval of your mother and father, get kicked out of the house, uh, you'll receive hundreds of mothers and fathers in your new church family. If you lose, lose fields, which in an agrarian society would have meant a career, or, you know, the, the ability to provide for yourself, then you will receive from God in other ways more than you ever imagined. In this present age, it's because Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God by coming in on the earth. Jesus brought the kingdom, life with God under his rule to the earth. And so it's begun in part when the already not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet fully arrived, fully realized. And we can experience an abundant return on whatever investment we give in the kingdom of God. Let those who have ears to hear here. If someone came to you and showed you a guaranteed investment to return a hundred times whatever you put into it, and you really believed them, like you just couldn't deny it, that was going to happen. Would you hem and haw and hedge about like, what's the bare minimum? I could kind of sneak in there just to like see or like keep, you know, keep my index fund. But you know, also like there's this hundred times, uh, you, you know, investment. No, this is what the, the parable of the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, like enjoy the man goes and sells everything to buy the field. You, you sell your house and your cars and drain your retirement accounts and you put it all in because you don't want to miss out on the return. This is not shoulds and oughts. This is an invitation to an investment opportunity. That's what Jesus is calling us into. Yes, there is loss, there is sacrifice, risk, uh, a death of sorts, losing life in order to find it. But the result of loss is resurrection, is a bounteous return. So we made it through the text. Let's try to land the plane here, uh, Jesus and money. Again, Jesus talked about money a lot, more than sex, more than heaven or, heaven or hell. And here is, I think, what we see. If I could just distill for your consideration, the teachings of Jesus and the rest of scripture to one sentence regarding money. It's this, money can be useful, but it's very dangerous. Money can be useful, but it's very dangerous. Money has its uses, but it's a liability. I think this contradicts what we hear a lot in churches, especially in wealthy churches, which is like, it's just neutral. It's just a tool. It can be used for good or bad or whatever. And there's some truth to that, but I don't think that's faithful to the full teachings of scripture, which is that it is a liability. Consider just some of the, the passages from scripture. First, the parable of the sower, Mark 4, uh, when they're talking about the four soils and the, the seeds that are thrown, sown among thorns, it says this, like seed sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. I'm not going to talk about these. I'm just going to read them. James 5, 1 through 3 and verse 5. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. 
you have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is the word of the Lord. This is, this is tough love from our King. And if I could land all these passages on a metaphor for you, that I think you can follow pretty deep. Just a metaphor regarding money, according to the scripture, to, for you to chew on, it's this. It's that money is like fire. It was kind of in that James passage, you know, eat your flesh like fire. Because fire can be useful. It can keep you alive in the wintertime, cooking delicious food, forging metal to build things. But it can also burn down your house and burn your flesh. And it, it, it's common sense, like the more fire you have, the more cautious, the more alert, the more aware you have to be, right? If I had a, a little candle right here on a stand, I'd be like, oh, nice, you know, a little candle. Is it Advent early? You know, it's just a candle. But if I have a ginormous roaring bonfire right here, like Mark Large is going to get the fire extinguisher, and then I'm going to be banned from using props and sermons, you know, from here on out. You know, it's like, wait, you know what that piano's worth? You know, it's just like, you have a big fire, uh, you got to be very careful. We're going to be very on guard. The same is true for money. The more you have, the more you have to watch out for all kinds of greed and be very careful that it doesn't keep you from the kingdom of God. And to continue the fire metaphor even further, I love just, you know, working a metaphor as much as we can. We as a society have used advancements in technology to reduce the amount of fire we have to interact with. At my first church, there were a lot of older folks there, and they, almost all of them at some point told me about either their house as a kid or their grandparents' house that burnt down 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we're using open flames to heat our homes, a wood stove, fireplaces in every room, log rolls out, boom. You know, the, the, the house is gone. But now, because of technology, how do we heat our homes? We have a tiny little gas fire, normally down, you know, we've got an HVAC guy here, down in the, down in the basement, uh, in the furnace that we never see, you know? And if it, if it goes out, we call Joe and he comes and just, you know, lights the, the pilot light, you know, or whatever. But we just never think about fire and it heats our home. We've used technology to where we don't have to think about it. It's way less dangerous. Houses burn down way less frequently. This is what Jesus is getting at, at in all of these teaching. Monies can be useful, but it's dangerous. And we surround ourselves with it and the stuff we can buy at the risk of our own souls. And the invitation is to grow in simplicity to where we think about it and need it less. We set up our lives to where we just don't have to be around this dangerous thing as much. We don't have to think about this dangerous thing as much. Money can be useful. Jesus himself, his ministry was supported by wealthy women. You see wealthy people in the New Testament, all that stuff uh, coming up in, uh, in, the, in the, serving the church in, in the New Testament, in the church. Uh, but I would propose that we should scheme and strategize ways to live and manage our money so we deal with it less. How's, how's everyone doing? Are we squirming? I'm squirming. 
let's keep squirming. Here's some ways, a little diagnostic test for you to consider uh, your relationship with your money. You don't have to answer these out loud. Raise your hand. Just pray about these with God. These are some, some statements to consider. You might not have the healthiest relationship with money if you can't give large amounts of it away. Only small amounts if you have extra. You think about how much you have to give, not how much you can give. I get that question a lot. How much do I have to give, pastor? And my job would be so much easier if Jesus just said, said a, an amount, a percentage, but he doesn't. Number three, the more you make, the, bigger, you know, the higher your income, the lower the percentage of your income you're giving away. So maybe you're making $30,000 a year and you're, you're giving 3,000 of it away and then you bump up to 50 and you just kind of stay at 3,000 or maybe bump up to 3,500 or something like that. You're scared of having less than you're used to having of any lifestyle changes, afraid of not being safe or happy. You're jealous of people who have more money than you. And lastly, no matter how much money you make, you always want more. <laughs> Yikes. As uncomfortable as this may be, I just wanna bring us back to the basis for this entire discussion. The emotion that's in Jesus's heart towards you and towards me, which is love. It says, he looked at him and loved him. And Jesus right now is looking at you and loving you in regards to this topic of money. Uh, Jesus, I, you know, I gotta do my due diligence here. Jesus is not calling all of us to literally sell everything we have and give it, give it to all to the poor. That was a specific invitation to this guy. And there have been other Christians throughout history that have felt that same invitation. And maybe some of us here are hearing that same invitation to sell it all. But this is not a, this is not a, a, a this is an example. Um, but throughout church history, you see Jesus followers live this way, take a vow of poverty. And it's a beautiful way to live, a beautiful way to testify to the goodness of God. But it's not, not everybody has to do it. But in love, Jesus and the rest of scripture, I think share with every single one of us a dire warning about the deceitfulness of riches and the hindrance that riches are to entering life with God. That's for all of us wherever we are. And in love, Jesus looks at you and he warns you. And then he, in love, he invites you to make the best investment you possibly could make, to buy into the kingdom of God to, and look for a hundredfold return in this present age with persecutions. It's not like a cruise ship until Jesus comes back. There, it will be hard, but it'll be good and it will lead to eternal life with God. And I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit right now is bringing to mind something in, in your heart and mind that, that he's calling you to give up. A chunk of money, a property, an overtime shift that you won't let go of, uh, that takes you away from time with God and your family. Will you obey the Holy Spirit's leading? What's he bringing to mind? And for all of us, I just want to invite you on a journey of generosity. 
It's a journey that I'm on, that I'll be on for the rest of my life, that I think Jesus followers uh, take for the rest of their lives, a journey towards being more and more generous. And it's daunting, but it's also hopefully comforting because the journey could be long, but it's a step at a time. You can begin a journey one step at a time, and you don't even have to know exactly what's going to happen or all the places you're going to visit or what's going to, you know, what's going to happen along the way. But I think this is the invitation. The first step on the journey is to consider tithing or giving 10% to your local church. And I say that super uncomfortably knowing that like pastors talking about money, like here we go, you have full permission to roll your eyes and grumble pastor wants my money. Like you can say that about me. I, 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 but this is for the sake of your soul. I want to say what Jesus is saying. I believe I'd be failing at my responsibilities if I did not call you to what most would say is a baseline level of generosity, a 10% of our income going to our local church family. It's the tithe is the Old Testament word, means 10%, comes from the Old Testament. And it's, it's a good starting place. It's a way to, to say, I want to be devoted to God and not money. I know many of you are already doing this, uh, but you know, if, you, if you're not and you're like, what, you want 10% of my money? You can start wherever, start with 5%. Uh, remember, it's a journey, you know, start with whatever you can and consider the journey of how to increase it. But let me just warn you, don't pray about how much to give because it's gonna be way bigger than, way, than what you're thinking about. That was a joke, definitely pray about it. What I was saying, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're like really wondering, like, oh, God probably doesn't want me to 10%, let me pray about it for a little bit. Like, hold on tight. I just want to honor this church and the history here because everything that you see and experience here at Carl Road is from faithful generosity from your brothers and sisters, from you guys. This room, this building, the staff, faithful generosity over the decades. Some who are still with us, many of whom have already gone home to Jesus, and you are invited to join the work of God in this place, in this church family, in Northland through giving your money. It's a way of worshiping, ascribing value to God and participating in the gospel work here. The journey continues, step two, uh, to beyond 10%. Maybe steadily increase how much you give to your local church. You know, as your income increases, maybe the percentage of your giving increases. Uh, Rick Warren, the guy who wrote Purpose Driven Life, did a reverse tithe when he got your crazy, you know, publishing uh, royalty check and, you know, did, lived on 10, gave 90 or whatever. Um, but then consider other ways that you can change the way you live. If you're like, I don't know where the money would come from. I, I, I don't have any extra or whatever. The, the giving is not just like the stuff lying around you don't know what to do with. Like if you have that problem, come talk to me. Uh, but the, the, the invitation to give is not to wait until it's just like lying there or whatever. Instead, we change our lives, our lifestyle. We give things up like deliberately for Jesus and his gospel. You could give to Scarlet Hope. Uh, this ministry we've partnered with reaching lost women in the adult entertainment industry and strip clubs and escort services or LifeWise Academy that we're hoping to launch where we have an opportunity to teach the Bible to public school kids. And uh, Julie Large broke it down, $8.33 a month or $100 a year uh, would be enough to teach one kid about the Bible. And this is from our public school right across the road here. Kids that don't know, uh, most of whom don't know who Jesus is and the good news he came to tell us. 
there's lots of opportunities uh, to, to give. And, and this journey of generosity is this experimentation, this like curiosity of like, what could I change about my life, my finances that would free up money to participate in the life of God and the kingdom work. And it's just a mind-blowing overlap of miracles that God works, the, the kingdom in breaking into this world and our dollars. Like something that's so amazing and like lost people getting saved and women getting called out of the sex industry and all this stuff and just our bank accounts. It's a beautiful way God works. I mean, we talk about money, we talk about words, talk about serving kids ministry. God uses simple things that we have control over to do miraculous things, to multiply it for fruit that, that things that bear fruit through eternity. And it is a journey though. So if this is terrifying to you, you can do whatever step feels safe. What's one little step towards generosity? And just put, I would just invite you to put the onus on God. Do something generous this week. Give more than you normally do or whatever. And say, okay, God, this is on you. Jesus himself said a hundredfold return. <laughs> that feels a little uncomfortable to me, you know, to say that, but that's what Jesus said. Like, see what God might do through that. And if you've been faithfully giving for a long time, thank you. Thank you. I just have such a deep sense that here at Carl Road, like our life together as a church is we are, we are standing on the shoulders of godly, faithful, gen generous generations in our history. But I also want to invite you to continue, even no matter what age you are or how long you've been doing it, continue on the journey of generosity. Because I, I don't think the journey ever stops. And it, it can be easy at a certain point in life, I think, to you know, just be on giving and have everything on autopilot and not really think about it, not really have our finances before God. Even though we might be giving generously, it's just kind of like set. I don't think about it. It doesn't affect my lifestyle or whatever. And I just got to be curious if God might be inviting you back into the journey, that there's some, something else that God wants to invite you to give up, to invest in the kingdom of God. Listen to the Holy Spirit, see what he might say. I believe that as we follow Jesus, we find more and more ways that we can, we can embrace simplicity in our lives and embrace generosity towards others in the kingdom. Jesus told the rich young ruler, one thing you lack is to give up your functional Lord and Savior, which was money and possessions, and come follow me, allow me to be your Lord and Savior. That's God's invitation here. I just want to behold, us to behold, as we close here, uh, the standard for generosity or the, 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 the most generous image that we can call before our minds. And it's from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, Paul instructing a church about being generous. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looks at you, looks at us and loves us. Is not Jesus in love is not asking us to do anything that he himself was unwilling to do for you. Jesus as God in the flesh was, can we just say fabulously wealthy, cattle on a thousand hills. And he took on the form of a servant. He became poor for my sake, for your sake. 
He gave up heaven for earth and now he's asking you to give up earth for heaven. He gave up his wealth for us and now he's asking us to give up our wealth for him. Wealth, however you define it, for him. Jesus' call to radical generosity is the cross. The basis for it is the cross. It stands as the ultimate image of giving up something for the sake of something infinitely greater. And the something greater was God's glory in redeeming your life. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC podcast.